This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Camaraygal people of the Gurungai tribe of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging, and I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may be listening. Hi, my name's Luan and this is the Rewritten Mead podcast, where I talk all things breast reconstruction after a mastectomy. Because let's say it like it is, having a mastectomy can be devastating. Sifting through all the information is overwhelming, the medical jargon's bamboozling, and it can be just plain scary and lonely. But you're not alone. That's why we're here. On the Rewritten Me pod, I talk to leading surgeons about all aspects of reconstruction. Nipples, belly buttons, foobs, Dieppe flap, and staying flat. I also talk to healthcare professionals who can help with everyday practical advice to support your mental, physical and emotional well-being. And I talk to the wonderful women from our reconstruction community who so generously share their stories with you. We're all here to help you make an holistic, informed decision that's right for you so that you can have a say in how you rewrite your story. Hi everyone, welcome back to Rewritten Me. In earlier episodes, we've talked quite a bit about autologous reconstruction, where your own tissue is used to reconstruct a breast or breasts. It wasn't planned that way, it just kind of panned out that way. Because there are, of course, other reconstruction options, like implant-based reconstruction. And while Dieppe reconstruction, where tummy tissue is used to reconstruct a breast, is often referred to as the gold standard for breast reconstruction, we do need to be mindful of framing bias because it's about what reconstruction is right for you. And as we heard from Kylie Lynch in episode seven, what's right for you now might not be what's right for you later down the line. And that's a whole lot of decision-making. And when you're making a decision about what reconstruction is right for you because you're having a risk-reducing mastectomy because you have an increased risk of breast cancer, there are even more factors to be considered. And finding evidence-based resources to help inform your decision can be a challenge, even when you're a health professional and have a high level of health literacy. So I'm very grateful to be joined today by Dr. Sandy Mink, who will be talking about how she navigated her experience of reconstruction as someone who has a high risk of breast cancer. Sandy Mink is a fellow of the Royal Australian College of GPs with 10 years of clinical practice. She's a non-clinical GP now with over 20 years of medical education and communication experience. And Sandy is an advocate for breast density awareness and personalised breast cancer risk assessment. She's passionate about patient empowerment and informed shared decision making And that's why we're so very happy that she's joined us today, because that's what we're all about. Thanks again, Sandy, for joining us this morning to talk about your lived experience and your decision making. Um, Before we talk about that, though, I wanted to just talk about the fact that you're a GP, but you describe yourself as a non-clinical GP. I wonder if you could explain what that is. Sure. I, I I am a qualified GP and I've maintained my continuing medical education requirements, but I'm not currently seeing patients. And I think that's an important distinction when I'm talking about medical issues. Um, I I believe my knowledge is up to date, but it's not the same as dealing with patients every single day, day in, day out. 
Great, great. Thank you. Thanks for the clarification and that distinction there. But firstly, I wondered if you could talk a bit about why you found yourself needing to make a decision about having risk reduction mastectomy and therefore the reconstruction options that were available for you. Sure. So in June this year, I had my annual screening. I attend a private clinic. So every year I will have a mammogram and an ultrasound. This year, my mammogram showed some microcalcification. So I had some additional views and they had some concerns about that. So we proceeded to a mammogram-guided core biopsy and that showed some atypical lobular hyperplasia. So I met with a breast surgeon and The process was actually quite interesting because initially she had said to me, we would normally excise atypical lobular hyperplasia, but because my core biopsy process was quite difficult, they ended up taking three samples and each sample contains three cores of tissue. So there was quite extensive sampling there. Um, And so she said, you know, there's a lot of tissue being removed already. Um, But we decided to go ahead and do an MRI. I didn't meet the criteria for that, the Medicare rebate criteria, so I had to pay for that out of pocket, Um, but that showed a hotspot. So then, of course, we and that was suspicious of DCIS, so obviously then we proceeded to excision removal of that lesion At the same time, there was a lot of discussion about my overall risk um, in terms of my family history. So my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer at 59 and died of breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer at 69. Um, My grandmother, so my mother's mother had ovarian cancer, but that was not diagnosed till she was in her mid-90s and she passed away soon after. I also have an aunt on my father's side who had breast cancer at age 63. So although it's not a strong family history, um, it it was there. And, again, I didn't meet the Medicare criteria for genetic testing, so I did decide to go and see a clinical geneticist and self-fund genetic testing. Um, I thought the likelihood of me having a BRCA gene was very low but I wanted to exclude that. Yeah. Um, and then interestingly, that genetic test revealed a different abnormality, a check to gene mutation. Um, and I subsequently found out that came from my father's side of the family. Right, okay. Yeah, so I had, um, so at this stage I had some atypical lobular hyperplasia, which increases my risk. I had the family history. I also knew that I had extremely dense breasts um, because that is measured and reported and in and patients are informed in, in the private clinic I attend. And I had my first child very late. I still hadn't reached menopause at 55. So, you know, there was multiple risk factors that all added up to me being in a high-risk category. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thanks. So lots happening there. And you said June, that was June from June last year. Yes. Yeah, that, that was starting. Yeah. 
So that's that's lots to be looking. I mean, looking at your family history and then the, the biopsies and the tests and the scans that is going through. So that's a kind of a really intense period of activity for you around your health then last year. Yes, and you know it all happened sequentially and for me too slowly. I mean, the reality was is that it was probably quite rapid, especially compared to the public system. But, you know, I spent months waiting for the next result, waiting for the next result. Um, and my excision biopsy, biopsy showed lobular carcinoma in situ. There's a lot of controversy about that. Is it stage zero cancer or not? Um, but it's definitely considered a precursor to cancer and increases your risk of cancer by about nine to ten times. Right, okay. So another factor that was coming in there along with your familial history and your personal history of um, late menopause and, and, and having children later. So you've got all that information there. And you've got this health background, you know, your your health literacy is really high. Um, what, what options were available to you or were given to you or did you need to find them out yourself? I think, you know, it's always challenging when you're a health professional because I did a lot of preemptive research. So I went to various doctors that I saw with a lot of knowledge and probably preformed ideas about what I wanted to do. Um, in terms of an actual risk assessment, I ended up doing that myself. So I found three different ones and I completed them all or, or attempted to. Um, Australia has a, an excellent risk assessment tool, I Prevent, um, but having been diagnosed with the lobular carcinoma in situ, it doesn't cater for that. So I couldn't complete that. I was able to download a tool called CanRisk from the UK and then the other key one was IBIS or Tyracusic. And interestingly, they gave quite different results. They have different inputs. One gave me a lifetime risk of 45% and the other 75%. Um, in Australia, we consider anything over 30% high risk. Okay. So it's definitely in the high risk category. You're definitely in that, but it's interesting, isn't it, Those uh, the differences between those two. Um, can I just ask about those those assessment tools? You, you were completing them with somebody, you know, as somebody rather that has that medical background, that health professional background. Is that something that you feel patients would be able to, you know, with, who don't have that level of uh, literacy, health literacy, be able to complete? I prevent definitely. And that is, yeah. in fact, designed as a shared decision-making tool for patients, people to use with their doctors. Um, can risk no, that needs to be downloaded. IBIS or Tyracusic can be completed by patients, but that does have a breast density input. And so if you don't know your breast density, you can't complete that measure. Um but from my perspective, even an incomplete risk assessment is better than nothing. Yeah, having some it's informed. It's a start. It's a start. It is, yeah. So you've completed your assessment there. You've got those different, um, different results that came through, but definitely 
within that high risk category and what options were made available to you or put to you that how you could manage that risk going forward sure so the three options that i were was given was surveillance and that would have been six monthly alternating mammogram and mri um the second option was surveillance and tamoxifen, and in fact, I had already started tamoxifen, um, so I was basically doing that already. And then the third option was the risk-reducing mastectomy. And the risk-reducing mastectomy is what you decided that you wanted to elect to have. That's right. So after I got the genetic result. That actually was through a company in the States and they provided a free genetic counselling service and I wasn't able to get in to see my clinical geneticist in Australia for two weeks. So I took advantage of that. Knowing that um, in the US they're uh, far less conservative, <laughs> that's one way of putting it, um, in Australia, um, and that was definitely an option that would be presented to me in the US. And emotionally, that was my gut feel. I, I need to have this surgery. I need to have this risk removed. I'd watch my mother die of breast cancer. But I was concerned that I was making an emotional decision and I really wanted that validated medically. And it took me a while to get that validation from my doctors. And in the end, I, I saw a number of doctors and two in particular were very supportive and said that they would support me with whatever decision I made. So, you know, my surgeon that I chose in the end said, I think this is a valid decision, I'm very happy to do the surgery, but if you had said to me you wanted ongoing surveillance, I would have supported you in that as well. So that was great. Great, yeah. So seeking out more than one opinion and finding somebody who aligned with you. I I really love how you acknowledge that you were making an emotive decision and you looked for that, the independent, medical independent evidence-based uh, input into that decision as well. Yeah, it was really important because, you know, there will always be multiple opinions and, you know, sometimes I felt as if Certain people thought that my decision was perhaps overkill, and you do see, sometimes see that term in the literature, overkill. Really? Um, yeah. I've sorry, I'm really a bit shocked by um, that term. Actually, I can I've heard I've seen the term like overtreated, but I've never seen the term overkill. <laughs> well, it might be more in the lay media and the medical oh, right. media as opposed to actual publications, but I've definitely seen it. So you found a surgeon that you've aligned with and we talk, just talking about those uh, those consults that you had, those few consults that you had, we just wanted to flag that when we were chatting about this, it's a bit of a bit of a strategic approach. We were talking about Medicare safety nets, weren't we? And how being in the private system, obviously there is a cost that's involved with regards to those consultations, but you were hitting the Medicare safety net, weren't you, towards the end of that, that's right that period. by the time I'd had all the investigations the MRI the clinical geneticist um I'd hit that safety net and so 
a specialist consult, which would normally cost, you know, $300, maybe $250 out of pocket, was only costing $30. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is still a lot of money for some people, but um, it was certainly better than not having that yeah. safety net. I think it's a good a good note really for anyone when you're getting towards the end of that year to consider how you're you're using that if you're getting towards your safety net. So you've aligned with a surgeon and they're support, fully supportive of whichever decision that you're making, but you want to make the decision to have a risk reduction mastectomy. And what were your considerations about the type of reconstruction you wanted after your mastectomy? What were you what were your considerations, your personal considerations? So for me, it was very much about wanting minimal intervention and ideally one and done. Mm. And I was very lucky that I had a friend, a very good friend, who used to work um, in the expander industry. And so she knew all the plastic surgeons in Brisbane and was able to recommend some and this is another interesting point because the original surgeon I worked with who did my excision biopsy worked with a plastic surgeon. So she did the mastectomy and the plastic surgeon did the reconstruction. And this is a, you know, pretty much a standard model. However, I discovered that there are breast oncosurgeons who can do both mastectomy and implant reconstruction. They don't do the flaps, that's the plastic surgeons, but um, because I had chosen implants for a number of reasons, which I can go into if you want. Um, yeah, I, I was able to find a breast oncosurgeon who could do both procedures in one go. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's a term that's been used in the pod um, is oncoplastic surgeon. You sometimes hear that term here as well, I think. Terry from DFC might have made a reference to that in, in the pod that we did there. But yeah, if you wanted to share why you chose implants, I think that might be a really interesting, um, an interesting discussion for our listeners, because I know it's a lot around that decision making and it's all very personalized, isn't it? It's about what you wanted and what was right for you and your personal and your health history. Yeah, sure. And look, as I mentioned, one factor was just ideally one procedure, although it's never one and done, but one procedure, you know, minimal wounds, minimal minimal downtime, but also like due to the stress that I put myself under really, um, I was very low weight. I had virtually no body fat. So there really wasn't enough tissue to do flaps in any case. I did consider flat and interestingly my beautiful partner said to me, he said, why wouldn't you just completely remove the risk? Just, you know, nipples, every skin, everything. And, you know, I did discuss that with my surgeon and, you know, the risk from uh, skin and nipple sparing compared to flat is not hugely significant and I was happy to accept that small risk and I, I I looked at a lot of images of women who are flat and you know I, I think they look amazing and beautiful but I just didn't see myself as flat yeah, yeah. so that left me with implants 
which, you know, I was not unhappy about. Um, I would never have chosen to have implants, you know, aesthetically or anything like that. But given the three options, that was the best for me. And when did you have your implant-based reconstruction, Sandy? It was in February this year, so not quite four months ago. And how, how did it go? How did it go? It went, well, it's interesting because I say it went great. Um, I feel like it was relatively easy. Um, when I focus on the details, there were some issues. So, for example, when I woke up, my left arm was completely dead and then as it came to life, it was extraordinarily painful and I remember one of the beautiful nurses just massaging my arm for about 15 minutes um, and I was given quite a lot of pain relief uh, which was kind of alternating between fun and not so much fun because it dropped my blood pressure and every time I tried to sit up or get up I vomited uh, so oh. the first day was not pleasant but other than that I just improved day after day after day I was home day four with my drain bags spent a couple of days at home and then I was walking around the suburbs oh great so you got moving as soon as you could which is a great thing if you can do that I think yeah and look again that's the advantage of the preventative surgery I did have six months to prepare so I exercised I prepared myself as mentally and physically as I could and I did bounce back pretty quickly, I think, as a result of that. So some prehab there before your surgery. Absolutely. Yeah. And was that, um, was that with an exercise physiologist or, or from your own, you know, your own knowledge or your research? Well, I, I do have a few issues in terms of, you know, tightness in my back and hip flexors, and so I had... I do have a physio and so I did see her a couple of extra times. I really focused on yoga and Pilates for strength and core and flexibility and um, a lot of walking. That's great that you had that support there in place as well with because that's people that you're comfortable with already, isn't it, to get that information from. And walking, walking was my saviour really from my treatments but also in, you know, prep and rehab for my surgeries mentally and physically yeah oh, and if you can get outdoors it's just magic and how long were your drains in for because it's I know this drains are such a um such a concern for women and actually they were for me when I had my first surgery I was really worried about drains um how long did you have yours for Sandy I had I think the right was 10 days and the left 14 so when I went it didn't get removed until I saw my surgeon for the second checkup. Yeah. But like you were saying, you're still doing things. You're out walking with the drains. There's no issue around that, is there? No. And look, the worst thing was I was originally given a, you know, medical support bra and it was quite tight and seemed to sit right on where the drains went in. Mm. So I just said to my surgeon, can I please just wear my Kmart surgical bra? <laughs> Yeah. And he was fine with that, you know, again, benefit of implants, not needing, you know, I think with flaps you might need a bit more pressure. And so that made a world of difference. Oh, good. That's good that you asked them as well rather than just kind of pu pushing on through but actually saying to your surgeon, this is 
this is not working this is not working out for me so recovery sounds like you had those rough day or so in the first first you know first days after surgery but um it got better as you kind of have gone along definitely and how do they how do they feel do you feel because that's another concern I think for people with implants is like how the implants actually feel because when people talk about DEP, that's one of the benefits that they say, oh, it's your own tissue and it feels more natural. But obviously it's about, you know, it's about what you what you want. So how does it feel with the implants? Uh, I'm still getting used to them, if I'm honest. Um, yeah. And my left one, I sort of described it to my surgeon. It feels a bit like the princess and the pea. I'm, it feels like there's something behind it. Um, but that's actually setting, settling down significantly over time and I'm I'm virtually unaware of them now um I I can't lie I find it really hard to lie on my stomach I I think I'm scared of them bursting (laughs) which seems ridiculous but you know and it just feels weird it feels so weird yeah it's interesting isn't it it's a whole new habitus really of your body that we need to hear we hear that off Cited kind of new normal um and that's often about mental but actually it's a new 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 body habitus isn't it that we need to get used to yeah yeah sandy you said that you were hoping for a one and done surgery and and then you said that it's not always a one and done so are you are you going to stay with a one and done or are you thinking that you might have some further surgery so it's still very early days for me. I'm only at the four-month mark. But one of the known complications or, or I guess risks of implants is the rippling. Um, and because I am a little bit older and my skin is a little thinner, I do have some rippling. If my posture is good, it's not so bad. Um, but it is. You made me sit up straight and I sat up straight when you said that. It um it is something that I'll probably address in the future. Um, but you know, at the moment it's winter. I'm mostly covered up. It, it's not a significant issue. Interestingly, the other thing that I did chat to my surgeon about again, you know, being in the in the prime of my life is you know my breasts were already just a little tiny bit droopy to start with, and of course the you know it's the same skin to deal with. Um, I'm definitely fuller up top, which is a great advantage of implants. Um, but I did ask if at some point in the future if they could be lifted a little. And he said that was possible. Um, it wasn't always easy thing to do and I would need to consider the risks of going back in and potentially exposing the implants to the external environment. Um, so it's I probably won't ever do that, but it's nice to know it's there as an option. Yeah. Yeah, and good to chat to your surgeon about that as well, isn't it? To let them know what you're thinking, what your hopes are, and have that considered discussion. Yeah, I go in with a list every single time. <laughs> Me too. I, I go in with a spreadsheet and you can see their face like, oh, gosh. <laughs> I joke. My surgeons don't look like that, but I, I'm sure. It, um, but, yeah, I, I have a list usually as well um, to go in with. Um but it's a good tip, isn't it? Because you can forget what you want to ask if you don't have a list. Yeah, yeah. And and I've actually learned that I have to write down the answers too because 
yeah, they'll give you the answers and you go, yeah, that makes sense, I understand, and then you get home and you've forgotten. Yes, absolutely. A brilliant tip to write that down. Um, and a tip as well, for particularly if you're in treatments and, you know, you, you experience a, a chemo fog or anything like that, have somebody along with you. I used to, I used to ask the questions and my husband was the scribe. He used to write the, um, he used to write the answers down there. But yeah, really great tip because it, as you said, it makes sense, doesn't it? You're nodding going, that makes absolute sense during the consult, but um, it's a lot to take in, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Great tip. Great tip. And so thinking about going forward now, and I think women who've had implants and particularly if they've had um, a breast cancer diagnosis um, or have had, you know, seen as high risk of breast cancer, one of their concerns is about the monitoring going forward with implants. So would you like to share what your monitoring or surveillance will be going forward? So at this stage, I'm still three monthly, and I think that's partly because the surgeon and I chat about other things as well in, in terms of education and advocacy. Um, but also, you know, in three months we'll be heading into spring and that might be the time to start planning the fat grafting. Um, I think after that, you know, again, can't really remember, but I think it was that I would just have an annual review with him I don't think there's a requirement for screening um and in fact um I'm menopausal and he's given me the okay to state start hormone replacement therapy again which oh. yeah and so again only for women who are having the preventative surgery um but yeah that's you know that's great for me yeah, so the hormone therapy may not be um, appropriate for everybody, but I've, I've, when I hear somebody who's going through menopause and they are allowed to, they can have hormone replacement therapy, I feel really happy for you. I really oh, do. Thank you. <laughs> it, makes, it makes me so happy. I've just, you know, I've got girlfriends and it's been a game changer for them really. Um, so that's really great. I'm so pleased, Sandy. And um just there, you mentioned advocacy. So when you're chatting to your surgeon, um, talking about you, but then you're talking about the advocacy and the education work that you're doing. So I mentioned in the intro that how you've really become an advocate around breast density and how you are sharing lots of evidence-based resources that are really, the, you know, the forefront of this discussion around breast risk assessment and breast density. So why are you advocating for breast density? Why is it important for you? Because there are so many risk factors for breast cancer and women just aren't really aware of them all. Our current screening is age-based and that's only one of many risk factors. Breast density is something that can be seen on a mammogram. So women who are screening, their breast density is visible to the radiographer and the radiologist. And... I just was really shocked to find out that women, that it wasn't reported by breast screen and women weren't being informed, except, of course, in WA and in the trial sites in Breast Screen South Australia. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of discussion about inequity. We've already got it in the 
within the public system, let alone between public and private. But ultimately, I think that women have a right to know about their bodies, particularly when it impacts their health and their risk of cancer. Um, The whole motto of breast cancer screening is early detection saves lives. For women who have extremely dense breasts, they're missing out on opportunities to have additional screening that might pick up their cancers earlier. Yeah, great, great, yes. And I had um, dense breasts and I, I wasn't aware of that risk at all. But, I, I mean, I found that out after my mammogram where I was then diagnosed, but I wasn't aware of of that issue at all. And I really want to thank you for highlighting um, highlighting this. I had a friend who recently went to have a mammogram and I shared some of the information that you'd been putting out there on LinkedIn with regards to that but it's really interesting, you know, it made her aware of, of breast density and her increased risk. But interestingly, she went to breast screen and when she asked to be notified what her density was, she was challenged as to why would you need to kind of know? <laughs> and um, and it was interesting because she didn't feel then she had enough knowledge to counter that, Do you know, like, because you're in that kind of imbalance of knowledge and, and power as well when you've uh, got your top off and you're having your mammogram done. Um but I want to really thank you for the work that you're doing in this area because it is such an important discussion. And we, you're absolutely right. We need to be aware about what's impacting our bodies and our health, don't we? Yeah. So, you know, we talk about being breast aware. Um, and in my mind, that's broader than knowing what your breasts look and feel like. It's knowing what are all the risk factors that impact on your breast health. And that's, yeah. you know, alcohol. Um, I just saw something on LinkedIn this morning, a intervention at actually some breast screen centres looking at were women aware of the risk of alcohol and breast cancer? Only 20% of women were aware of that risk. So we need to educate and inform women about breast awareness beyond how they look and feel. That's extremely important and I'd strongly encourage women to know their breasts but I also encourage them to look beyond that as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's almost as if we're moving from that. That was our starting point, isn't it? And now our our, uh, health literacy around our breasts and our breast health literacy, let's call it, um, is now evolving, isn't it, from that starting point of, yeah, let's regular checks that you do self-examinations and knowing your breasts. But as you said, it it goes beyond that. So a great work. That's really great, um, Sandy. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing there. I really look forward to seeing how that evolves, particularly on LinkedIn. I know that's where you're very strong putting the evidence-based information out there. So um, thank you for raising all that awareness there and also on the pod here. So please, listeners, start to be breast density aware and go and check out Sandy on LinkedIn. And thank you so much, Sandy, for sharing so much there about your uh, health history, um, about your decision-making process, um, and also about the advocacy work that you're doing. It's really interesting to hear, I think, from your perspective as a health professional, the research that you undertook and the multiple opinions that you sought out there as well. Yeah, and I didn't really talk about it, but I did also look at a lot of online resources. So the Queensland Clinical Excellence Commission has a whole series of videos on 
breast reconstruction and it goes through all the options. They have um, breast surgeons, they have breast care nurse and patients. I found those very helpful. I also looked at BCNA's website. They have an app um, that helps you decide. That was more targeted at breast cancer patients. So I found another one called Breast Advocate app and that had a wizard specifically for women undergoing risk-reducing surgery um, and that really confirmed my decision to have the implants. Um, so, yeah, the, and, and I joined lots of support groups and listened or read women's stories, experiences. All of it was invaluable. Yeah, yeah, and I think for me it's bringing together those different, you know, evidence-based, your personal wants, hopes, dreams, needs, if it's medical as well, but then um, the lived experiences. I, I see it kind of all those three areas can come together. And, uh, yeah, the Breast uh, Cancer Network Australia um, resources, Braconda, and, um, but also a shout-out for the Breast Advocates app there, which um, I'm hoping to go, be talking to the surgeon who developed that in an podcast in the future we're just trying to set that up because they're in America mm. and the time difference is crazy so I might be doing a pod at 1am in the morning with Dr C let's see how that works out but yeah great that you had those and I really like the wizard I love a good wizard for decision making yeah yeah it was very helpful yeah and great. and ask great. questions that didn't really occur to me you know like impact oh. on your daily life those sorts mm. of things mm. Yeah. Was that an impact of what type of reconstruction might be on your daily life or what your um, your uh, your breast cancer risk was having on your impact daily life? No, the reconstruction. So, yeah. you know, for example, okay. if you're a young mother who's got children that you might need to, you know, that you might not have help with, then, you know, having prolonged multiple procedures could be a challenge. Yeah. Um, yeah those sorts of things okay great thank you yeah thank you and I think for um anyone who hasn't listened the episodes that I mentioned at the introduction which is Kylie Lynch's episode episode seven um that is very much about that that she made a decision to have implants initially and then seven years later had a DF and part of that decision maker process not all of it but part of it was the fact that she had younger kids and time off work and and things like that and I know Dr Bish Solomon in an earlier episode has also talked about the importance as a as a surgeon of having those holistic discussions uh, with patients around how they live their life um, to consider what's right for them for the recovery. So that's great that that's in that app as well. So thank you so much, Sandy, and thanks for sharing those resources. We will um, put a link in the episode notes for those. That's great. Thank you. Now, as listeners will know, I ask guests to share a lyric or a line from something that means something to them personally or whatever they've been talking about in the podcast. So, Sandy, what's your lyric that you'd like to share with us? So my lyric is the first few lines of Helen Reddy, I Am Woman. It was the first thing that popped into my head when I got your email. And the lyrics are, I am woman, hear me roar in numbers too big to ignore, and I know too much to go back and pretend. And to me that just completely sums up 
my feelings when I found out that women weren't notified of their breast density. And I want other women to join me on that journey so that we all find out an important health risk factor. Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. It's such a powerful song, isn't it? But I love how that is. Yeah. Let's use that as a call to action, a rallying, a rallying roar um, to go and, you know, be more informed about your risk, which includes your breast density risk. Yeah. There. Oh, thanks very much, Sandy. I love that. I um, I have to say Helen Reddy, I, I was aware of her before a little, before I moved to Australia, but obviously since moving to Australia, it's become um, yeah, very important cultural song, isn't it? A cultural reference, rather. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it, it speaks to advocacy. We need to advocate for ourselves and those of us who can advocate for others. It does, doesn't it? And, and advocacy can be hard, particularly self-advocacy. Well, advocating for yourself and others it can be hard in both ways but I think particularly talked about that before the self-advocacy we know and we talk about it but sometimes it can be tricky in those situations can't it so um yeah the the session uh, sorry the podcast that I did with DFC founder Terry we talked about the different ways that you can do self-advocacy but that yeah this song absolutely talks to that um you might want to think about how you roar you might do that in a different different way. <laughs> oh, Sandy, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you this morning. Thank you so much for, as I said, for sharing your story, but also for all the amazing work that you're doing that, you know, that this has taken you on that path. Um, I really do feel that you're going to be making changes. I think changes are going to happen from the advocacy work that you're doing. Um, so I'm absolutely with you. And please, uh, listeners, do go and check out the work that Sandy's doing to help raise awareness of this really important risk factor for us um, and for our breast health. Thanks so much, Sandy. Thanks for having me. And thank you for your advocacy. And really the work I'm doing is standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm not the first person in this space, um, so I do want to acknowledge that. But, you know, sometimes you've got to take the baton and run. You do, and that's what yeah. I'm to do. You absolutely do, yeah. And I, I believe, you know, we are stronger together in in aiming to do that in collaborative working and the amplification, amplification, and the amplification of other people's messages. So, yeah, absolutely great to acknowledge that, Sandy. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to flag as well: if you do have an increased genetic risk of breast cancer, do check out Pink Hope. They're the Australian preventative health hub that gives their community, the tools to assess, manage and reduce the risk of breast and ovarian cancer. And they also provide personalised support for women at risk. Now, thanks everybody for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, do please follow, rate, share and comment. And I want to thank those people that have been um, have been doing that and have been putting some comments and um, letting me know, particularly through Spotify, what are the topics that they would like me to cover. And that just leaves me to say thanks again, Sandy. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Oh, you're you're so welcome. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Rewritten Me podcast, produced on the traditional lands of the Camaray Gal people of the Gurungai tribe of the Eora Nation. If you found any of the content upsetting, please reach out and get help. Breast Cancer Network Australia have a free confidential helpline 
1800 500 258. And Beyond Blue have a range of free resources online at beyondblue.org.au or you can call them on 1300 224 636. And a reminder that the information in this podcast does not constitute medical advice. For personalised medical advice, you should seek a consult with a FRAX qualified surgeon or an equally qualified surgeon in your country.